0: We are come to that point in our service. We are glad that you are here, by the way, wherever you are in your journey of faith and life, whether you're online or here in person, we're glad that you are with us. We are continuing our look at the book of Acts. We are in the last uh, part, we're in the last chapter, Acts chapter 6, of the second part of the book, and here to read a relevant portion of Acts 6 for us is Erica.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Acts 6, verses 1 through 15. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Erica. A tough passage to read. (laughs) How do you fight a war? It's a bit of an odd question to ask Canadians, isn't it? We are a nation, after all, of peacekeepers. We hate even talking about war. But we are Christians, and therefore we must talk about war because Christianity is war. You can deny it, but you cannot evade it. If you are a Christian, you are involved in warfare, a particular, hidden, counterintuitive type of war, a spiritual war. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, says, we do not wrestle or contend or battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you are here and you are a Christian, you might as well tell yourself the truth. I am at war. And then ask yourself the question. How do we fight this war? This passage helps us begin to answer that question. Here in the book of Acts, we are in a final incident of three. The second part, chapters four through six, talks about three major incidences of opposition to the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we described the persecution in the church and how the church responded. Last week, We looked at corruption in the church and how it was engaged and responded to. And this week, we're going to look at division. These three are the three typical ways Luke wants to tell us by ordering these incidents one after the other. They are the typical ways that the church experiences spiritual warfare, but how they experience it physically and temporally. And that is here it is division. The church, it says at the beginning, is growing tremendously. All kinds of disadvantaged people are being fed and cared for by the church. In an era where there is no social net, social care net, there is a tremendous amount of need, and the church has flown into the artery of that social need. But the distribution of food is not fair probably because of the overwhelming growth of the church at the time. It looks like there's probably been an administrative breakdown. But what arises is a complaint. The Greek word here is a murmuring, a grumbling amongst congregants because there are two kinds of people here, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what Luke wants us to see in this threefold repetition of opposition with varying types is there's a uniting thread. Intimidation from a hostile culture, corruption from leaders, division from amongst the the congregation. These are visible symptoms of an invisible spiritual war. And so what Luke wants us to know is what to see and then how to respond. This passage shows how the church defended itself by seeing it for what it was, And then how the church responded by advancing the kingdom through the weapons of spiritual warfare, the preaching of the gospel. So, firstly, how to defend. Secondly, how to go on the offense in this particular spiritual war. That's what we're told here. Firstly, Acts 1 through 7, the church defends itself against division. Here with the disciples increasing in number, there is a problem. The Holy Spirit has attended the regular actions of regular Christians, doing regular witness through their regular jobs and intercourse with their neighbors, and people are coming to faith. There doesn't seem to be wild and crazy things happening right here at the moment, but there probably are. There's no fancy preaching being named at the beginning here. Maybe at the end, there's no fancy programs, just people bearing witness to Jesus, through their lives, their actions, and their words, and the gospel is bearing fruit. But amidst this joy, there are two groups of Jewish people, one who are called Hellenists and one who are called Hebraists. The Hellenists have adopted the dominant culture's general values, forms, and language. They're called the Hellenists. The Hebraists are more traditional. They've kept the Hebrew language. They're probably speaking Aramaic, which was traditional amongst the Hebrews at the time. But Hebrew customs, values, and forms a little bit, if we could make a modern analogy, like in a, an immigrant community, where you have people who are first gen or maybe 1.5 who st- stick to many of the traditional values and languages and customs of the culture that they immigrated from. And then there's a the second and third generation who've adopted much more of the culture that they're in. And there's a division that has happened because one group is being favored. The traditional group is getting the money for food. Widows are plentiful in that day with no welfare state. They were relying upon this sometimes just to be able to eat, and it wasn't happening fairly. There's a real issue of justice here. Now ask yourself this question. In our culture, if there was a real issue of social injustice, how would we handle it? In today's culture, accusations of injustice and exclusion are immediately raised. Usually committees are struck, investigations are done, crisis management protocols triggered, press releases sent out. We would get in front of all this and try and assure everyone that we were on it, that it was wrong, we've got policies. We see this all the time in our culture. Because in our culture, the lens through which this would be interpreted is vastly different than a gospel lens. This would be seen as an example of structural injustice, and justice is all we've got. Because this world is all there is. So justice becomes absolutized. And fighting it becomes the ultimate fight. But the early church had a different culture. They saw that this world is not all there is. That the material physical life is not the sum total of human existence. There is a spiritual dimension of us and a spiritual dimension we inhabit. And in that spiritual world, there's a war going on. And they saw this in terms of that spiritual life, that spiritual dimension, and that spiritual warfare. How do I know that they saw it this way? Because how how they framed the issue. How did they respond? Not like we would. They went, these leaders, summoned the full number of disciples. They brought everyone in the church in and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Now, how does that sound in your ear? Not like how we would deal with it. Actually, it sounds quite condescending because for us, to serve tables is a waiter's job in a restaurant or maybe a busboy. They seem to be minimizing the issue. Serving tables seems quite menial. But that's the picture in our mind. If you were an original hearer of this at that meeting, you would know that serving tables, that phrase has one of two meanings. It's either you going into someone's home And then being served by the head of the household, because that's the custom of hospitality. The head of the household giving the food. Or it can also be used by someone at a table distributing funds like a banker taking requests. It's an official kind of banker-like job with full authority to distribute the funds. Either way, it's not nearly as menial as we think. But the issue here isn't pride. Its priority. The leaders are not diminishing the dignity of helping widows. They're clearly laying out the issue of unfair distribution of widows in light of the greater issue of the gospel and its proclamation. So they framed it that way as an issue of gospel. How is this going to affect the preaching of the word and the standing and, and the, resp- the reputation? And the credibility of the witness of those who are proclaiming the word. That's how they framed it. We need to solve this issue in a way that solves the issue and does not distract or take away from but enhances the public witness of the word of God. We are called to that mission, to spreading the gospel of God to these people, to that particular kind of war of love and we will see it that way, frame it that way, and finally we are going to solve it that way. There's an issue beneath this issue, and let's look that way, frame it that way, and then solve it that way. And so not only is their framing it proof that they saw it that way, they're solving it, in my opinion, is, how, is evidence that they saw it that way. They solved this issue of social injustice, possibly racism, or at least ethnic tensions by saying, let's find seven spiritually mature men of good reputation, filled with the Spirit of God and wisdom, and let's assign them to do this. They name people who fit spiritual criteria to make just and wise decisions, filled with the Spirit, wise. This is Not the way we would do it. Because justice is such a final and absolute good in our culture, and because we, historically valid reasons, have been afraid to give power to people and think they'll be fair, we try and make sure that all the leaders are appropriately distributed amongst all the groups so that they can fight each other and contend for each other and advocate for each other. We've given up any trust when we adopt that model that our leaders can make decisions that are disinterested or that are serving others, but not so in the gospel. There's not that quite that hermeneutic of suspicion. These people are asked to trust that these spiritual leaders will be spiritually filled with enough integrity to give the food away properly so that we can focus on the primary calling of the family of God, which is the proclamation of the gospel and prayer. That's what he says. Now, we look at that and go, prayer? Prayer is a, is a weapon of spiritual warfare? Well, the way they're defining it, yes. The way we tend to define it, probably not. I, I go to prayer meetings, and I have prayer meetings, and it's, you know... And Melissa, you know, fell down and hurt her hip. I pray for, for her healing. Someone needs a job. I pray for that. I tend to pray. We tend to pray. You tend to pray. The church tends to pray for very physical, material needs. God often answers those prayers, and it's beautiful. But the, 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 the last, if you go back in the book of Acts to, at the end of chapter 4, you'll see the most recent prayer that Luke gave, and it's an example of the kind of praying he means these apostles mean. Now, Lord, look upon the threats of the culture and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the kind of praying they are saying needs to stay central to the task of the leadership of the church. Now back to this event. How did the congregation respond to this counterintuitive, countercultural framing of a social justice issue as a spiritual warfare issue, framing the solution as a very spiritual solution to allow the continued spread? of How did they do? They said, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen and Philip, and I won't Say all the names, it was hard enough for Erica. (laughs) They were pleased because they had the same perspective, that the gospel is the central issue and the church should take this issue seriously. There is real injustice, but it should solve its issues spiritually as well as physically. And so the implication here to all of us is to open our spiritual eyes. There's a reality of spiritual war that needs to be acknowledged. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, this might be something you're very skeptical about it. I get it. And so I ask you, read history, read the news and ask yourself what explains the darkness in Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein. What explains the darkness? and the serial killers that we know. What explains the darkness? Go watch Schindler's List if you're too young to understand anything about the Holocaust. Watch for two and a half hours and ask yourself, do I ever want to watch this movie again? It is considered one of the most profound movies and one of the most unwatchable movies of all time because it allows you to experience the horror of Nazi Germany's treatment of the Jewish people. And what I want you to ask yourself is where does this darkness come from in my paradigm? If you're a Christian, I need to say, wake up to this way of seeing your world because it is the way the New Testament sees your world and you. And if you don't see it, that means you're in a war and have no idea and are not preparing properly. And so you're probably much more likely to be fleeced by corrupt leaders, to allow division to enter into your interactions in the Christian community, to be intimidated by the hostility of the culture around you. How to defend is to open our spiritual eyes. If you are leaders, look at this response And let's take note. They took the issue, dealt with it head on. This is an issue. Let's not hide it. They brought the people together, it seems, right away. When they were brought together, they framed it for what it was, There's division here. There's legitimacy for the division, but we're not going to demonize the people who are divided because the demons are the ones we need to demonize. This is fallen, broken people doing what fallen, broken people do. So let's love one another, seriously resolve it in light of the impact for the gospel. Beautiful. The lens through which you see is through lens through which you respond to the disagreements, the divisions, the corruptions, the persecutions, and the intimidations that you will receive as a Christian. See things rightly. You will respond rightly, and you will defend the gospel and yourself against spiritual war wisely. To defend, secondly, how to advance the kingdom. Starting in verse 8, it describes Stephen's ministry. And we have just heard he's a deacon. We think he's waiting tables. And it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders and signs among the people. And he is arguing for the Christian faith. And all these people come up, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Here's how we advance the kingdom people, like this deacon, a deacon who has a formal role of helping to distribute food to poor, impoverished people. but He's not doing that work here. He's doing work he seems to be extraordinarily gifted for, or at the moment, extraordinarily momentarily anointed for. This is the work the apostle said we need to be free to do. We're going to let you do that, so we do this. And he's doing this instead of that. It's confusing for scholars because it doesn't fit nice categories. He's, he's, is he a deacon? Because that's what it looks like that role of feeding people is. Or is he an apostle? We don't know exactly. The text does not decisively tell us. It says he was full of great power. Neither of those words say anything about natural or spiritual gifting, but usually someone with this ministry has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. Later on in verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. The spirit was speaking through him with extraordinary power. So what do we know? He was given a formal position. He had this extraordinary informal ministry of sharing the gospel. So this is what I think we know that the leaders of the early church were not nearly as interested in roles and titles and org charts as we are. They were interested in gospel outcomes, the movement forward of the gospel. And whoever had an effective ministry in that and had the appropriate character was given a leadership opportunity for that. Paul the apostle would say years later, in his letter to the Philippians that he didn't care that while he was in prison, people were preaching the gospel because they wanted it heard so that he might, he might have a tougher time in prison. Literally, that's the, the context he faces. And in Philippians chapter 1, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You can't say that, unless your perspective is that that is how, the, that is how the, the spiritual war is won, by the loving proclamation and effective proclamation of the gospel. What's going on here? If, I, I've read a lot of books about war, and the closer you get to the front line, the more important certain things are. We need to work together, we need to trust each other, and org charts and stuff don't really matter in the moment of combat. It's dealing with the enemy so that we survive and we move forward. Things get blurry and things get fuzzy. And I think here, that's what's happening. The way the church waged war back then was pray as much as possible, proclaim as much and as widely as possible to people who are not Christians, and have fluid, organizational, Relationships that kept those two priorities priorities and to love each other as deeply as possible, both to encourage people, eradicate injustice, but also to show the world the love of Jesus because Jesus said, By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. I submit to you what people who are not Christians think if I say this the church isn't involved in a kind of war. Is that kind of war. The average non-Christian thinks, if I say that, of historically maybe military war. Right now maybe the cultural war. And for those of us who are Christians, I submit to you, you probably think that way too. You don't primarily think, oh yeah, Christians were involved in a spiritual war. We are citizens of this world. We cannot escape the political, cultural, and sometimes military entanglements and obligations that we have as citizens of this world. But we are primarily citizens of somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, says Paul in Philippians. Paul said to the Ephesians, and I read it again, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Stephen here was telling people about Jesus. He was at the epicenter of spiritual war. He was taking the battle to the spiritual forces of darkness. And what does it say? They were not able to withstand him in his wisdom and in the spirit. The spirit in the book of Acts is the primary Warrior in this war of love. Opening people's hearts, melting them with the love of Jesus, letting them know that their sins are forgiven so that they become Christians. That's the kind of war we're involved in. That's the kind of way we wage the war. It's not primarily about complaining about anything the culture is doing. It's primarily about giving the culture the one thing it desperately needs, and that's Jesus. And now look, very quickly about the opposition to to Stephen because there's something very interesting here. The opposition progresses in three ways and and because I've just told you the three ways that Luke has described opposition, you'll start to catch this. Firstly, theological division and debate. When that didn't work, they got people to slanderously accuse him of lacking integrity as a leader. And then finally, they got the authorities to intimidate and persecute him. Does that sound like an interesting threefold progression? and then this strange final verse and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel why why is he telling us this why because he looks like an angel he looks like he's from somewhere else some other dimension he looks like some other person, the angel of the Lord, who became the incarnate Son of God. Scholars have noted that Stephen is following in the footsteps of one Jesus. Jesus came into human form, preached this message, was opposed in just these ways. Theological and spiritual contradiction, then slander, then finally arrest and killed. Why was he killed? He was killed to break the power of the evil one in you and me. Sin lies in each of us. Dark thoughts lie in each of us. Cruel thoughts lie in each of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a spiritual master who loves to grow that darkness in us. And John, his closest friend on earth, said in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Men and women, Jesus died for you, not just to pay the debt of your sins, glorious isn't that, but even more beautifully, to destroy the work of the devil in you, to free you from the corruption and the addiction and the desire to follow him into selfishness and cruelty. He wants to free you from being controlled and manipulated and seduced and lied to by the devil. And Jesus was treated exactly the way Stephen is being described here. Disputed, slandered, arrested, murdered. That's what happened to Stephen. Jesus here, by his spirit, is filling Stephen with a supernatural presence and joy and love such that his face is changed. The Spirit of Jesus is pouring out the love of Jesus into the heart of this follower of Jesus so that this child of God looks like an angel of God and professes the truth of the Son of God so that all of us who are estranged from God can become one with God and become His adopted children and brothers and sisters of the one Son of God. When we follow Jesus into courageous witness of the gospel against opposition, both spiritual and physical, We will not only face the spiritual battle head-on, but we will be met with and empowered by and infused with the Spirit of God Himself. You will meet Him and experience Him in a way you have hardly met Him before. This is what Paul, who did that, said in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. I have suffered the loss of all things, Through persecution, intimidation, division, slander. The loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He's worth it. The war is upon you. The war is worth your life. The warrior is waiting to meet you. Defend well. See the world of opposition and all of its permutations through the gospel lens of the particular kind of spiritual war of love you are in and you are called to. Wage war well. Pray these kinds of prayers. Prayer for spiritual advance. Structure men and women, staff, elders, lay leaders, structure this church for spiritual advance and allow the empowering of the Spirit to overcome the intimidation, the trepidation, the hesitation, and lead you into proclamation of the Word of God so that the people of God may rejoice and those who are not yet the people may come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. May you help us all to do this in Christ's name. Amen. Stephen, I think you have questions. Okay, thank you, Dan, for the sermon. Um, We have one question that came in so far. Uh, Okay, we have two now, so I'll read the first one. Now that they know we're doing it, they'll they'll start coming in. Go. That's right. You spoke about how the early church chose leaders that proclaimed the gospel. So why not not choose uh, female, uh, for example, elders to help lead the church? Uh, Why not choose female elders? Um, Because the… And and this is a dispute, but our denomination, our church, and me personally, our elders… Uh, have noted that in the part of the Bible where it does talk about roles, it says the elder should be the husband of one wife. Now, however you want to play with that, husband is a male term uh, in its original context. And so, we looked at all of the biblical data, and we think that the Bible, while affirming all of the worth and gifting of women, does limit the role of elders, and that role only, to men. Thank you. Uh, next question. How should Christians choose leaders in politics? <laughs> uh, uh, that's a great question. Um, carefully and wisely. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you're dual citizens. So. You have to kind of balance both of those. You have to understand the relation of both of those, Um, and Christians have a lot of disagreements over both of those. Um, The the spiritual kingdom has implications, Uh, how we should order our lives, what what care we should give to the marriage bed, how we understand ethics, how we understand uh, life issues, beginning and end of life issues. All of those implicates, implications of the gospel are part of who we are, and they kind of inform uh, how, we, how we choose people. But it's not just the policies they hold. This is, I think, one of the, the great questions that came up in the United States when a lot of Christians thought that the policies they held most resonated with, 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 as they understood the implications of the gospel, were more closely aligned with the Republican Party, but the Republican Party was led by someone whom they deeply didn't dislike. And so, I've had many uh, an anguished conversation over these issues. So, carefully, prayerfully, and wisely, it's not easy. Thank you. And um, final question is, uh, one potential danger of the warfare concept is that it requires an enemy. How do we keep from seeing each other as groups, um, as groups of enemies? Or how do we keep from seeing each other as enemies? Yeah, so I think the, the, the danger of spiritual warfare talk is um, there, are two, there are two sides in this division, for example, the, Hel- the Hellenists and the Hebraists. And, oh, this is a spiritual warfare. You tell that to everyone and they go, okay, so which group is on the side of the devil and which group is on the side of God? And you, you, you create that kind of perspective what this did was say, we're all sinful, we're all broken, the mistakes have been made all, all over the place. Let's give each other grace and say the battle of who's on God's side and who's on Satan's side is simple. Satan and his demons are on their side, and God's on his side, and we're kind of trying to figure out how to stay on God's side, but we have our own sin and our own selfishness, and so we're tempted, and so you always look at each other as you're not a demon, and you're not Satan's, and, and I'm not God and God's representative. I, we're both a mix. And in this particular case, I may have 70% of it right and 30% of it wrong, and you got 30% right and 70% wrong. But we still love each other, we're still sinners, and we still are one, and let's not allow this union and this love of each other to be broken by this disagreement. The gospel lens of being sinners and saints, of being beautiful and broken, helps us not to demonize each other. That's the one danger of spiritual warfare, and churches have done that. This person said this against this pastor, spiritual warfare, the the, the agent of the enemy. No, no. They might be deluded by the enemy, they might have be 70% wrong, but they're beloved children of God, yeah. They're beloved children, and as we all are, we all need God's grace. We're all sinners, we're all broken. So a certain amount of humble distrust in our own rightness is a helpful guide to this because we are in this battle and sometimes we lose perspective. I know I have lost perspective many times over the last few years as I've seen divisions. Churches have been rent asunder by COVID all over North America, and they're now coming together and people are, oh, gee, I I was really way too strong on this side. I was really way too strong on that side. And they're beginning to see we demonized each other uh, over some of the COVID issues, and we need to learn to love each other. And the best way to love each other is to realize that you are a sinner who needs God's grace. And so we're going to go to the place that unifies us by humbling all of us and yet frees us by realizing we are completely forgiven. And so be ready for the Lord's table. I'm going to ask us to do a song of response to ready our hearts, and then we will enter that table together. So, Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that the gospel humbles us and yet unites us. The gospel shows us who the real enemy is and allows us to move toward each other in forgiveness and grace. But the gospel also makes us see where the real war is. Help us to be people who love you, who pray spiritual prayers of loving warfare against the enemy and his lies and to proclaim the gospel of freedom from that enemy To those who desperately need that freedom, we pray in Christ's name.